All right, welcome. Uh, welcome to Labrie. If you have not been to Labrie, we are a Christian organization, but we welcome people who are not Christian, people who are, and then people who don't know where they fit. People who come to Labrie will stay for short periods of time or longer period of time wanting to ask honest questions about life, about faith, about discernment. And so people ask life questions or try to make life discernment uh, while with us. And we do it over meals, which we had tonight. You're always welcome to come on a Friday night, even if you aren't a student. Uh, and uh, we, we want to not only to speak, but we, we want uh, Labrie desires to be a demonstration of the reality of God. That, uh, that people are welcome to come into our lives and judge us and to see if our claims are truthful and right. It's not all time that you can, you can hear someone speak. Uh, there was a Jewish man I met on the plane once, and uh, he asked me if I was a pastor. <laughs> and I said, not really. And he said, you know, the problem with Christians is dot, dot, dot. <laughs> and I didn't know what was going to come. But he said, uh, people talk at you for 45 minutes and then you can't ask questions or disagree. Uh, so that's not Labrie. Labrie is where I get to talk at you for 45 minutes, put you to sleep, and then you can ask questions. However, the spirit leads. Uh, tonight, I'm going to be dealing with a topic that I feel very ill-equipped to talk about. Uh, not because I'm not in the spirit, but because it's a complicated topic. Uh, and I think that you get a sense that this is a complicated topic by my title, Who or What is the Holy Spirit? Um, more often than not, when we think or speak about the Spirit, we, we think more of a what, like a force, uh, than a who. Jurgen Moltmann, uh, in a book on the Spirit, wrote, If we take the experience of faith as our starting point, then even in the New Testament, it is already an open question whether God's spirit was thought of as a person or as a force. Uh, this isn't too surprising because the spirit is spoken of as a rushing wind, as tongues of fire, as flowing water. The spirit is being poured out into the disciples or upon them. Uh, Paul speaks about the spirit as a seal or a guarantee or as a down payment. And so um, also we see certain church expressions. Uh, we see excitement. Uh, my son came home from a youth group at a local charismatic church. And he said, I never realized that the spirit is warm feelings. Um, I didn't want to douse the flame. Uh, <laughs> So I had to be careful in how I navigated that. Uh, but speaking of it as a force, people rolling around or laughing, kind of hysterics if it gets excessive. And so uh, it's not too surprising that we think of the spirit as a force and we might speak of the spirit as it. Um, yet the Bible does reference the spirit as having a personality. Um, so you can see my outline is, you know, I'm, I'm dealing with the question, who or what is the Holy Spirit? Uh, and then I'm going to be talking about the story of scripture. 
and the implications for the church today. So just three basic, but let me keep going. But the Bible does speak as the Holy Spirit, as a who, as a person, as a personality, not just a, a force with anthropomorphic um, pomorphic qualities to speaking of the wind as something human, but rather that, that this person is spoken of in metaphors of rushing wind and tongues of fire. But the Holy Spirit is very much a person in the scriptures. Uh, in Acts chapter 13, verses 2 and 4, the Holy Spirit said, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. The two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. That's the action of a person. Romans 8, the Spirit will pray on our behalf. The Spirit will groan to Jesus and Jesus will intercede to the Father. In Ephesians 4, the Spirit is grieved by, um, by Christians being sinful. And a force cannot be grieved. A person can. In Hebrews 2, the Spirit disperses gifts. And so as the Spirit wills. So there's a discernment and a decision-making process. Uh, and also you see that the Spirit is not only a person, but a person within the Godhead. Because you see placed um, on an equal status with Jesus and the Father. Um, so in Matthew 28, verses 19, the Great Commission, baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then also the Great Benediction at the end of 2 Corinthians, chapter 13, the grace of Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. So the real sense that the Bible sees the Holy Spirit as not as an it, or as a force, but as a person. <clears throat> but if that's the case, if we were to try to image the spirit as a person, what kind of spirit, I mean, what kind of person would that spirit be? It's hard because the spirit is always pointing away from himself. It's inconceivable. Uh, it seems so much easier to think of the father or the son having images on our mind, but it's impossible to think of how would we draw the spirit. Now, there are images uh, of the father. Often people think of Michelangelo, this kind of stern creator, provider, sovereign will. Uh, of course, the second commandment is don't make any images of me. Uh, because not only might it lead to worship, as it did in the ancient world, but really also don't misrepresent me. You, you can't represent me. And so we might have questions. We also have images of Jesus. Now we see a lot of physical descriptions of Jesus in uh, his movements, but we're never really described. And of course, the only thing it says about Jesus is there's nothing remarkable about him, um, which is odd because in the chosen or in the passion, Jesus is always extremely hot. Uh, um, I've always thought of making a shirt with Jim Cavazell. This is who you see on the front and on the back of my shirt said, you had me at follow. <laughs> but I didn't think that people would understand my joke. Um, uh, it's one of my criticisms of the chosen is that Jesus is tall and attractive, uh, which was always a sign of the pagan kings, not of the Israel kings. Uh, and so, but but even so, so we, we have images of our mind, though we should be corrected to say maybe these images aren't accurate. 
they aren't what they really look like and these images can misrepresent. But just imagine if you could under, if you could imagine the spirit as a person, a personality. You know, you, you think of the excitement in the churches, the rushing wind, the tongues of fire. And I think Liberace, the spirit would be very much like Liberace. He wants to bring the fun times so the heathens might know that God is fun and exciting out of this world. Of course, I grew up in a very different tradition where the image of the spirit was an empty room. The spirit just was not really necessary. It was all about the word and about the father's will and the son. But the Holy Spirit was rarely spoken of. And if spoken of, it was something that God did in the past, not in the present. But Liberace on one side, an empty room on the other. How do we weigh this? What does the spirit look like? Um, And that's something that I'm trying to get at. But there's difficulties in trying to get to what the spirit looks like. Uh, The first difficulty is that we're not given a physical description. Uh, There, we see movements of Jesus throughout the gospels and that kind of give us an idea of the character of Jesus, the kind of person he was, Um, you know, children being drawn to him, him being stern with the Pharisees and You know, on the cross, we have very, we have strong images, whether they're accurate or not, but we have a sense of what it would be like because Jesus was human, but the spirit is not human. And so, but in the same way, we can follow the movements of the spirit to try to figure out what is the character of the spirit? What kind of person is the spirit? The second difficulty is that the spirit is constantly pointing away from himself, He's always wanting us to look to the father, to cry out, Abba, father, or to look at the son. The spirit descends because and doesn't even take up room and saying, look, this is Jesus. Mm -hmm. So the spirit is constantly looking. And and if I were to have an image, if I were a a good drawer, I would probably like have a stick figure and have an arm pointing out of the side and then having Jesus and the spirit. Um, But the third difficulty we have, not only is that there's no description of the Holy Spirit because there's no physicality, also the Spirit continually points away from himself, but also God is Spirit. You can see this picture um, by Rublev of the Trinity, the three divine guests, and I think it's a remarkable practice or reflection on what the Trinity might be look, look like because they all look like each other in a sense, but they're distinct as well, and they all have different perspectives. Um, but even so, but the problem is, is that God is spirit. And so just, I'm going to like overwhelm you with a quote, um, that's dense by, uh, an Orthodox theologian that's wants to kind of express the difficulty of this is from, uh, Sergei Bulgakov in a book called the comforter. And this is what he says on the book about the spirit. God is spirit and spirituality is the very essence of God. In addition, spirituality in God is expressed associated, expressly associated, as it were, with the Holy Spirit, the third hypostasis. Hypostasis simply means personality, but one essence. So not really a type of person that we think of, but distinction, like uh, uh, the energy of God and, and or in the essence of God. The spirituality of the Holy Spirit as the third hypostasis is identical to the spirituality of God 
but at the same time, it hypostatically differs from it in some sense. One can say that the Holy Spirit is also the Spirit of God, but one cannot say, conversely, that the Spirit of God is the Holy Spirit, for God is Spirit in his entire tri-hypostatic being, not only as the third hypostasis, but also as the first and second, saying that Jesus, the Father, and the Spirit are Spirit. Spirituality is proper to the first and second hypostasis, not less than the third. The Father and the Son are Spirit to an equal degree as the Holy Spirit, but it is the Holy Spirit who manifests the spirituality of the Holy Trinity as the tri-hypostatic God. So aren't you glad I'm not dealing with this tonight? That This is really trying to understand who is the Spirit in relation to the Godhead, especially if God is Spirit, is neither male nor female, as Jesus said. Well, what makes the Holy Spirit distinct as a spirit if God is spirit? It's very hard for us to comprehend. It's incomprehensible, in fact. It, we can't get to the bottom of it. Uh, and we just trust that the word gives us what we understand. But we know that there's something distinct about the spirit as a person uh, alongside the father and the son. But who is the spirit? <laughs> And, but I'm not going to work from the essence of God. That's uh, trying to work out who the spirit is from above and then apply below eternal subordination or something like this. Uh, who is, who is the Trinity in behind the veil, but rather looking at the spirit. What my project is to look at the spirit from below about the actions of the spirit, the actions of the spirit. <clears throat> um, and so if I were to, <clears throat> Uh, think of an image that might be helpful of looking at the spirit. There's a song by Big Bill Brunsey. It's a blues song called Joe Turner, number two. And uh, it's about a song about all these families devastated by the flood. They've lost everything. Poor white people, poor black people. Um, but there's a guy named Joe Turner and he comes around. He helps all people, no matter of color. And they, and these poor people go out and they hunt for, um, possums and coons and things, but they don't catch anything most of the time. They come home and their house is full of molasses and meat and uh, all the things that they need. And then they go out and look for things and they can't find anything most of the time. And they come back and they have clothes, firewood, shelter. And, and the refrain in the song is Joe Turner had been here and gone. Lord, Joe Turner had been here and gone. Mm -hmm. So you never see Joe Turner. And you don't know why he's doing it, how he's able to do it, but this almost supernatural figure who's demonstrating. And so it's like this character of someone who leaves their fingerprints around, but you never see them. But we probably have a tendency to think very highly of Joe Turner. And I think that in the same with the spirit is who is the spirit. And, and so, <clears throat> but, um, and so what I want to do is the best way to approach the spirit is trying to look at the spirit's actions. Uh, because I don't think it needs to lead us into an agnosticism or a mysticism when we think about the spirit. <clears throat> uh, now, some people often want to talk about the spirit by going first to church experience or church expression to talk about who the spirit is or what the spirit is. This is, this is what the spirit does. But that is not our primary mode in order to know who the spirit is. Um, the primary mode is the Bible itself. 
Now, this is important. It's not just because the Bible is a text that Christians read and therefore, but it's why we have the Bible. The Bible itself is how the Spirit has revealed himself. Uh, that um, Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6 through 13, it says, no one can search the depths of God. No one can know the mind of God. Only a person knows their own mind. And the Spirit has revealed the mind of God. Okay. Um, and the Spirit has not only revealed Jesus to be the Messiah um, in word and in power, but the Spirit also revealed the gospel through the disciples and cut people to the heart. But the Spirit is also the one who has always spoken through God's people so that we might understand who God is. And so the Spirit, in fact, has produced our scriptures. The Holy Spirit has spoken to us and has given us our scriptures. Um, <clears throat> so I'm, so, you know, I was trying to think, should I make this talk quicker or should I work on my PowerPoint? And I worked on my PowerPoint. Yeah. So I'm going to have to like thumb through. But listen to uh, a few a few instances in the New Testament where it speaks about the spirit as being at work in breathing the word of God at work in revealing the word. And so in Hebrews chapter three, verse seven, it says, so as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Hebrews is referring to Psalm 95, but it says the Holy Spirit says, but of course in uh, verse seven of chapter four, Therefore, God again said a certain day, calling it today, when a long time later he spoke through David, as was said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And so in Hebrews, it has this idea that the spirit spoke, but that David wrote and spoke too. But the spirit worked through David to communicate. Uh, you also have in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, um, this is a place where he's saying that no prophet speaks on their own authority. Um, <clears throat> Uh, chapter 1, verse 10 through 12. Concerning the salvation, writes Peter, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, that's the gospel, searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. So the Spirit was at work, and that's why in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, it speaks about the, spirit, the scriptures being God-breathed, that, that the Spirit revealed himself. And so if we want to know who the person of the Spirit is, we turn to the scriptures. Because whenever we want to see the Spirit, we need to look to the Word, which is true in many ways. Because okay? the Spirit is always pointing to the Word. So what I want to do is I want to walk through the scriptures. This is the second portion. Uh, we looked at who or what is the Holy Spirit. It's a who. Uh, and that we can look at who the Spirit is by what he has revealed about himself. And what he reveals about himself is often who the Father is and who the Son is. And how they have orchestrated God's purposes in creation and in redemption. So I'm going to go through the story of scripture and point out where the spirit shows up. Uh, you see, you'll see in the old Testament, the spirit shows up, but not, but more shadowy and then more solidly in the new Testament. 
<clears throat> before I turn to implications of what do we do with all this information. Okay. Okay. So the Old Testament. <clears throat> so let's start with creation. The first possible utterance of the spirit or possible instance is in Genesis chapter one, verse two. Now the word there is ruha. Okay. I don't speak Hebrew fluently. So just <laughs> bear with me. At least I'm not saying ruah, uh, ruha, something like that. Uh, but does this mean breath? It can. Does it mean wind? It can. It can also mean spirit. Um, these are the three ways that this word can be translated. And so when it says that in the beginning, God hovered over the waters, it says the breath or the wind hovered over the waters. So in a sense, is it the spirit? And so if you look at the NIV, the ESV, the RSV, it's going to translate it as spirit. But other Bibles will translate it as the wind. The wind of God hovered over the waters. So you think of the stirring of the waters. So it's not necessarily the spirit. Um, perhaps some people thought maybe it's the breath of God as he speaks his word. Let there be light. So his breath. But Irenaeus spoke of God working with his two hands, spirit and word, breath and word. Um, is that what's being intimated here? Uh you know, a lot of people, when they translate the Bible, they want to try to translate it to how the original audience would have heard it. And so that's why some translations will refer to it as wind or breath. Mm. <clears throat> but it is difficult because it says that this wind hovers over the water, which is a personal action. It's that it chooses to, it's, it doesn't just blow across the water, it hovers in order to create order out of chaos. <clears throat> um, and we see this repetition and even this parallelism of breath to spirit of God throughout all the Old Testament whenever it speaks about creation. So Genesis 1 is not the only instance. Um, in Psalm 104, <clears throat> this is a, a beautiful psalm about the wonders of creation and how God takes care of it. <clears throat> And chapter, I mean, 104, verses 29 through 30, it says, um, oops, the wrong song. when you hide your face, they are terrified. This is all of creation. When you take away their breath, they die and return to dust. When you send your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the earth. So the spirit is really understood as a part of creation. You also see it in Job, let's say Job 33, verse 4. I won't read all these. Oops. In 33, verse 4, the spirit of God has made me, Job is speaking of himself, the spirit of God has made me, the breath of the Almighty gives me life. So time and again, the spirit um, is spoken of as the power to create and give life, uh, um, and more importantly, to give life to creation, to sustain it. So when we think about the ministry of the spirit, first and foremost, it is to bring life to what is created, that it's not just dead matter. It speaks of the soul. You gave me life by your spirit. 
but also you give animation to all things living. And so, so there's something that, you know, in Hebrews, it says that Jesus sustains all of creation by his powerful word. But here we see that the spirit also is in the act of sustaining and conserving and continuing creation. Um, and I, I'm going to go on the ledge here, but it's, you know, when, when we sin against creation, we're sinning against the father or sinning against God because it is the spirit that we sin against. You see, because the spirit is at work in creation. This is God's creation for his purposes. Um, um, I think it was Basel of Caesarea, um, Caesarea, who said that the spirit is the perfecting cause, that the spirit is not only over creation, but brings it to its completion. And we'll see that that actually happens throughout scripture even if he doesn't have scriptural merit, but it is a principle in scripture that we will see. So this is important to hold that the spirit is vital to our understanding of what it, um, the life we see around us. What does the spirit do? You know, the heavens declare the glory of God. Well, that means the heavens declare the glory of the spirit's work in all of creation. But we also see the Holy spirit at work in Israel. Oh, let me back up. Let me back up. I, I want to address a question that I've been asked a few by a few of you, uh, <clears throat> interrupting my great thoughts. <laughs> no, just kidding. Uh, what are we to say of the spirit at work in creation? Not just in redemption. We often think of the Holy Spirit just in redemption, bringing renewal to, uh, to God's people, to convert hearts and things. But if the spirit is at ordering creation and, and enlivens creation, then does this mean that the spirit may be at work in non-believers through their music, mathematics, physics, art, governance, and more? Uh, John Calvin dealt with this question, uh, 16th century reformer. And uh, he wanted to point to uh, Bezalel and Ohiliab, I think that's how you say it, um, that the, the spirit anointed them, that, that Moses found people who were talented in arts and crafts, mm -hmm. arts and crafts, <laughs> Liz, the spirit is in arts and crafts. I didn't know that. Um, <laughs> but that they were called to to make, you know, the ark and, and follow the instructions of God and, and how they made things. And Calvin says that the spirit, you know, moves and quickens all things. And so we have an instance here of where the spirit is at work through people to create. And so we can see that same principle at work in non-Christians, where they do physics or music, whatever is excellent and good and beautiful is from the spirit. Um, that the unbeliever, uh, unbelievers can bless the world through natural God-given endowments, whether they know him or not. But Calvin was also clear that this is not saving grace. Just because the spirit is being impelled or compelled or anything within a person doesn't mean that, it's, uh, that it saves them. They have knowledge of the world because they're made in God's image, but they don't have knowledge about God. Um, and... There's a guy that I'm indebted to, uh, Graham Cole. 
He Who Gives Life. I really lean on this book a lot. Uh, wonderful book. Uh, someone said uh, he, um, he answers more questions than probably we even thought of asking. So, um, but he says that, you know, and, and I'll show later that, that the spirit anointing Bezalel and Ohiliab with building the ark was actually not common grace. It was a special appointment. And I'll explain why later. But nevertheless, I like Calvin's idea. And I think that there is merit in sideways of wanting to go and have a theological opinion about it. Because God, um, Jesus said that God gives sun and rain to the wicked and the righteous. That we see cultural agency happening throughout scripture. We see throughout Proverbs that people have wisdom that is outside of God's people that were incorporated into the canon. And so we see that there's, there's truth that can come uh, from, from outside of God's people, but it is God's people under the illumination of the spirit that says this is true about God and this is not. So the final filter is the spirit, but, um, but God can be at work in people who make excellent music, excellent art. Um, it's not saving grace, but it is, um, it is a gift that God has given the world that he has not forsaken it, even working through people who are non-believers for the sake of his creation. Okay. So the main point here is that the Christian can say that it's by God's spirit in whom we live, have, um, and um, move and have our being. Uh, and we can drive a principle that all gifts in creation are from God's spirit, the Holy Spirit. Um, now we can be cautious about this. But um, to say that this isn't saving knowledge, just to say, well, if God can be at work in someone who's doing something excellent or even kind, doesn't mean that it's a it's means that they are saved or working uh, um, uh, for the purposes of God willingly. Uh, <clears throat> it's God's graciousness to the world that He would work through these people who do not know Him. And what it does is that they are responsible of the gifts that God has given them. But people can misuse their gifts. Um, but Paul says in Romans 1 that people are without excuse. Um, in a sense that we, we participate in what God has given us as creatures, as his creature, creatures sustained by his spirit. So in a sense, we live and dwell by the spirit, but it's not a saving action of the spirit. It's an enlivening of the spirit in all the, um, but what I think about it is when I, when I think about this question is that those who have the gifts of God don't know the source or the goal of those gifts. Mm -hmm. So there was a, a young Australian woman at English Labrie and uh, she liked to, she had a ponytail and she liked to jump up and down with her sneakers. And she said, my family just loves each other so much. Why do I need Jesus? Um, and instantly I said, well, all the more to give thanks to God, that God has been so kind to you. You're neglecting giving thanks to the one who's given it to you. Uh, and so there, there is a, an ignorance of the source. But I also want to say that there's the ignorance of the goal, the purpose of these gifts. Uh, one of my favorite quotes in a movie called Magnolia is that there is a guy who's who really wants to be loved 
and he wants to get braces and because he wants to be like this person he really likes. But he ends up uh, not really needing braces, steals money, but then decides, what have I done? I need to give the money back. But in trying to give the money back, he falls and breaks his teeth. And so now he needs oral surgery. So it's kind of this irony. But this Christian police officer sits down with him in kindness. Uh, and uh, this, this man is just crying with his mouth kind of bleeding, um, bleeding. And he goes, I have so much love to give. I just don't know where to put it. I have so much love to give. I just don't know where to put it. To me, that is the person working outside of God's willing. Okay. They don't know the source and they don't know the end goal of those gifts, even though they may have them. And so we can see people who have tremendous amounts of knowledge and they turn it to themselves. Beethoven was like that. He wrote for the glory of himself um, in, in opposition to Bach, who tried, who wrote to the glory of God. Okay, <clears throat> I just needed to have that little excursus there. Now let's turn to Israel. So the story of Israel um, really begins with Adam and Eve. Uh, and they're called, Adam and Eve are called to be these cultural agents of creation. Okay. They are to tend to one another in birth and in relationship, but also to tend to the garden, to be cultural. And so some people call it the creation mandate. Uh, to, to, to have dominion over all things. Some people call it the cultural mandate because you start in the garden, but you end in the gardened city. And so there is a sense that it's supposed to go in this direction. Uh, however, Adam and Eve use creation to their own ends. They deny the source or the goal and they use it for their own ends. Um, <clears throat> nevertheless, God does not abandon his grand purposes um, for creation. Uh, and the spirit by whom God creates, he will also bring about this renewal through humanity. The spirit who creates will also recreate and renew creation by the same spirit. So that's why it's important to hold that. But, but um, the spirit applies this renewal to humanity, which we'll see in Jesus later on. But really, what we see the foretaste of this is the spirit guiding Israel. God calls out a chosen people, not of any merit on their own, so that they might live according to God's design, so that these people might be a light to the nations by how they tend to creation and tend to one another, to tend to the foreigner and so forth. Um, and so you see that the that this special work that is at work in Israel is done by the Spirit. The Spirit is at work in Israel and for Israel. So you see divine care. I would apologize, but I already have. Okay. I've learned in marriage you only apologize once. No, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> Isaiah chapter 63, verse 11. Uh, then his people recalled the days of old, the days of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them through the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who set his Holy Spirit among them, who sent his glorious arm of power to be at Moses's right hand? Uh, and I could keep reading, but this idea is that the spirit is guiding them that the spirit guides them. 
Uh, you also have it in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 20. Um, where is Nehemiah? Okay. <laughs> I know. Old Testament. Oh, goodness. It's right beside it's Hezekiah. Okay. I always forget that. <laughs> there are some Bible nerds in the house tonight. Okay. <laughs> Uh, chapter 9, verse 20 in the book of Nehemiah. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold manna from their mouths, and you gave them water for their thirst. So the spirit was guiding and tending to Israel all the way. Not just the father, the spirit just hanging out on a divine rest until his big moment, mm -hmm. resting up for the big moment. But no, he's always at work. You also see divine governance. Uh, I won't go into the passage. I won't read them, but... But here Moses says, I'm overwhelmed with all the needs of the community. And, uh, and so there's elders that are appointed and the spirit comes upon them. And Joshua's a bit upset. And uh, Moses is like, if, just, um, if all the people were to have the spirit, that would make it a lot easier. Mm -hmm. um, and then you see that God, uh, you know, the spirit comes upon the judges to lead Israel out of captivity to liberate them. Um, so you see the spirit really as a liberator and a warrior. And so blesses Othniel, Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson. The spirit of the Lord comes upon them. And then also you see that this, um, that King Saul, the spirit of the Lord came upon him and he prophesied and guided him. But King Saul disparaged it, constantly looking to himself. So the spirit departed and it depressed Saul. And the spirit came upon David, who also then became the great warrior and uh, so on. Uh, it was after God's own heart. You also see divine communication. Uh, we see this in Numbers 11. Let me read this one. The letters are so big, I think you could read it in the back. <laughs> but I thought it'd be easier to find. <clears throat> Uh, Numbers chapter 11, verse 17. I will come down and speak with you there, talking to Moses, and I will take of the spirit that is on you and put the spirit on them. They will help you carry the burden of the people so you don't have to carry it alone. Uh, and so the spirit will communicate. So this is about the divine care and the divine governance, but also divine communication. And even the prophets, Micah, you know, it says the spirit of the Lord has come upon me to tell me thus says the Lord. Uh, and that happens in Ezekiel. The spirit carries Ezekiel. And then Ezekiel speaks in the power of the spirit. And then in Zechariah as well. And so the spirit is also proclaiming. And then there's divine presence. That the tabernacle is to be God's dwelling place. Where God's spirit dwells. And so the spirit, this is coming back to Bezalel and Ohaliah. Where the, there's a particular anointing of them so that they build these things, the tabernacle, the ark. Uh, the reason that is a particular work of the spirit and not just a general excellence is because the spirit is um, maybe at work through their natural endowment, but in order to communicate the gospel. And so what you have in, in the ark and all the other things around the ark and then the tabernacle itself are all the story of the gospel for Israel about what God will accomplish through Jesus in the future. And so that's why through the book of Hebrews is pointing, and don't you know that this was for this, and that was for this, between the cherubim, the mercy seat, and all these things. And so the Spirit was communicating the gospel 
through a demonstration of his power through art rather than through just the written word so that people might know the gospel ahead of time to prepare their heart for the gospel. <clears throat> and then also the um, God's spirit comes and dwells in the temple and that uh, David um, tells Solomon to, um, to do all that is the spirit the, that the spirit is willing to do. And so, so what I'm trying to say here is that the spirit is at work in creation, but also in a redemptive way through Israel, through God's people in the Old Testament. Um, <clears throat> that the spirit is caring for them, governing them, communicating and through them and dwelling with them. It sounds very much like us today. However, they continually failed because as a whole people, they were not being faithful and they could not even find one person who could live faithfully and lead them. They really needed the spirit to come in a new way so that all of them would be filled with the spirit, as Moses had said. This was not a reality that the spirit had come and was guiding them and dwelling with them, but not indwelling them. That there was still a new work to come, a greater work to come. But the consistency of the Spirit's character is already at work. Um, <clears throat> and so what we have is that the prophets, particularly Isaiah, is starts to prophesy of the promise of the fulfillment of the Spirit. The fullness of the Spirit was to come. And so they only had a small foretaste of what a greater reality was to come. And they longed for this. And so the first thing they saw was that there was a figure. Um, the figure called the, um, uh, the Messiah. Messiah literally means anointed one. The one that would be anointed not just by oil, but by God's own spirit. And that the spirit would anoint this person. And so you have in Isaiah 11 that uh, it says that the, that the spirit of the Lord um, will give them wisdom and understanding and justice and mercy. Uh, in Isaiah 42, the servant of the Lord is uh, also being anointed by the spirit to act in these mighty ways. And so they were looking for the Messiah who would be anointed with power and wisdom by God's own spirit in a way that they had not seen in David, but someone who would bring justice to the nations. Um, <clears throat> and then we have in Isaiah chapter 61, which I will read. I would like to read all of them, but I don't have time. But chapter uh, 61 Verses one, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so this was the longing that the promise of a king that was not that was much better than David. And that would bring uh, justice to the earth, that would bring renewal, and that the nations would want to stream in and see that Israel now is fulfilling its commission to be a blessing of the nations because of its leader. But it wasn't just that, but the spirit was also promised to be poured out on them. Um, that, the spirit, uh, that the spirit wasn't just going to be for this Messiah, this promised king, but that, but that, but that king would make it possible for the spirit to be poured out on all of God's people and that it would be poured out on all of God's people so that they could be faithful 
And so it speaks about, um, like in Ezekiel 39, about their hearts of stone will turn to hearts of flesh. That the, the, the law of God, it won't be just something that they follow on a tablet, but it will be written on their hearts. It will be not just kind of a moral legalism of trying to follow the rules, but a desire to be holy. Uh, and <clears throat> you also have I, Isaiah 44, verse 1 through 5. Um, and you'll see, you'll hear how the spirit is being poured out on the people. And then what's listen to what the result is for, I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They will spring up like grass in a meadow, like poplar trees by flowing streams. One will say, I belong to the Lord. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob. Still another will write on his hand, the Lord's and will take the name Israel. And so what you see in Isaiah is not only that the spirit will be poured out on the, on the chosen people, it's Israel, but that this promise of God's spirit will be poured out on the Gentiles as well, that God's spirit will be for the renewal of humanity, but also the, for the renewal of creation. So the spirit's work is constantly at work in the Old Testament, yet it's not being fulfilled yet. It's just being waited on. So this is what makes the great wonder of the New Testament. I'll try to speed it up, but not too fast. Um, but I, I wanted to take some time in the Old Testament because some people make the mistake of saying, like Marcion, that the Old Testament is the God of wrath. The New Testament is the God of love. But actually, we see continuity between the two. And particularly, we see continuity with the spirit in the old and the spirit in the new. Though in the old, it's shadowy. It's how does the spirit relate to God? Is this a messenger? Is it an angel? Is this God's energy? What is going on? Uh, but in the new, we understand what Jesus reveals of the spirit and gets um, and helps us understand what the old was already was speaking of, but we just didn't know it fully yet. And so I wanted to emphasize that. But it's interesting, uh, at the very beginning, when we think of the New Testament, we think Jesus, right? Yeah. Um, but what many fail to see, and honestly, I failed to see before I did this talk, um, is how Jesus is under the lordship of the Spirit. Jesus does not act on his own. He is constantly led by the Spirit. That the Spirit is the one that hovers over Mary and brings about a new creation, that the spirit descends upon Jesus at his baptism, that the spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. The spirit empowers Jesus to do mighty works. Uh, uh, the spirit, um, when Jesus says, I commit my spirit and he breathed his last, that's not referring to the spirit, but in Hebrews chapter nine, verse 11 through 14 it speaks about Jesus on the cross and it says who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish. So it is how Jesus was able to offer himself was by the power of the spirit. In the resurrection in Romans one verse four, according to the spirit of holiness raised Jesus from the dead. Um, you see it in Romans eight verse 11, first Timothy chapter three, verse 16 and first Peter uh, chapter three, verse 18. 
um, that the spirit raised Jesus from the dead and that we are supposed to experience that same power of the resurrection in us. And then also the ascension that we hear of the spirit in first Timothy chapter three, verse 16. So what we see is that Jesus lived under the authority of the spirit. We often think of Jesus as his own authority who's following and who's imitating his father, but it's really the spirit who enables him to do that. He's guided and empowered in that as he pointed to his father, he worked in union with the spirit. Um, now, does this mean that we are, if we are faithful, spirit-filled people, that we should be like Jesus? Are we to act in the same power as Jesus? Um, it's tricky because the spirit led Jesus to do a particular work. That's right. No. Um, now, the spirit led Jesus to forgive sins. Um, that's what God can do. Um, but should we expect immediate resurrection, physical resurrection? Should we expect these proclamations and these healings? Um, what does it mean for us to receive the spirit so that we can be like Christ? Does it mean that we're supposed to walk in his footsteps or does it mean something else? Um, so I will come back to that a bit later. <clears throat> but it's interesting that the... Um, John the Baptist. So you have the spirit who leads, who leads Jesus, but then it's Jesus by doing his work who will give us the spirit. And so Jesus, John the Baptist says, Jesus will not, I baptize you by water, but Jesus will baptize you by the Holy Spirit. And so you see Jesus bestowing the Holy Spirit on God's people. And Jesus speaks a long time about another paraclete that will be sent to you, that will instruct you. Um, that the spirit who had dwelt with them now will indwell them, that the spirit will bring remembrance of all that Jesus said, that they will be able to witness through the power of the spirit to Jesus as the promised one. And the spirit will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And Graham Cole, the one that I referred to just a moment ago, he said that really the spirit is putting the world on trial. That the spirit of truth, Jesus says the spirit of truth three times, and that the spirit is putting the world on trial and to say, convicts you of, uh, of sin and of righteousness and judgment, but points to Jesus. And so the work of the spirit is really to say, um, is, to, is to enable what Jesus had done so that people might believe it, to know that they stand judged, but they also stand um, capable of receiving mercy because of what Jesus has done, not because of what they have done. And so, um, uh, and this is exactly what we see at Pentecost. Uh, the, that, the, that this promised spirit comes, and what happens? Peter speaks with authority. And what happens? They're convicted, and they want to be saved. The promise that Jesus had in John 14 through 16 happens at Pentecost. Um, now, one question that uh, might be asked, is this just a historical moment important for salvation history, or is it paradigmatic? Is, something, is the Pentecost something that we should expect for all believers at all times? Um, now, uh, the 
I want us first to understand before we start trying to get into the tongues and the prophecy and stuff, which I'm not really getting into. We can discuss it. But, but to understand what the power of the Spirit meant at Pentecost. People focus on the tongues, but not focus on the real miracle. Is that the real miracle was that for 40 days, the disciples were terrified, hiding to believe something ridiculous. The Spirit comes onto them in power, and what do they do? They stand in boldness. Peter, the, who, the one who wants to run away, deny Jesus, stands up in power to proclaim the gospel. And some scoff, but some are cut to the heart. And they, what should we do to be saved? Um, <clears throat> and it seems that this power doesn't necessarily fall on the 120. It falls on the apostles. Because in um, chapter 2, verse 1, it says they, because it talks about the Spirit falling on the, these people. And then in right the next verse is talking about the disciples. And, and when they hear this message, the people turn to the apostles and say, what shall we do to be saved? So it seems like there's a proclamation happening particularly through the apostles, not just 120 people having a good old time. But there's something that the Spirit is doing specially. So it's at least a salvific historical moment. Um, Cole and myself, um, because I follow a Reformed tradition, uh, believe that um, now there's a few views of, of how the Spirit's power is at work. There's the cessationists, and then there's the continuationists. Cessationists means that God's power was at work in the apostles and the early church until the biblical canon was closed because the spirit, the word, um, the Bible is the spirit's revelation. And that, and it comes about through power. And then that there's the spirit, not to say that the spirit doesn't continue to work, but that um, because even cessationists believe that the spirit is still at work, but wondering about these miraculous works or these special works. Um, there's also the continuation of some saying that you should expect the same but also um, continuations can be open, but cautious. Speaking in tongues and prophecy may exist. Um, they may still exist today, but we can't really say for sure if they're the same thing happening today as it was then. Those are the three positions, really the two for some subsets. I'm not answering that question for you. <laughs> uh, but what we do see, interestingly, is that through the book of Acts in chapter 2, and in verse 18, um, chapter 8, chapter 10, and chapter 19, is that whenever you see um, uh, the, the speaking in tongues or prophecy, it's at a significant moment when the gospel has marched into a new area. And so in Acts 8, is finally, it hits the Samaritans. In chapter 10, the Gentiles. <coughs> chapter 19, John's um, John the Baptist disciples. And so there's significant moments, but those are the only moments that you see them being recorded. And then they stop. Uh, and so a lot of people follow this as that there was a pattern that God was establishing his new territory. But then even when Peter in chapter 11 describes what happens, he says that these things came upon us uh, so that, um, let's see if I have it written down. It says that, um, that when they were able to proclaim that what happened to the people, the audience, is that their hearts were cut to the quick. 
it's not that the people's hearts that were cut to the quick began speaking in tongues. It was that these people were speaking in tongues and then people converted. A different set of people, you see? Um, and so Cole says that we may not stand in the same line as the apostles. We stand in the line of the audience, that the spirit is proclaiming the gospel still and God's mighty work is still at work. And, um, and that spirit is pro prompting us to respond. So the spirit's work is still miraculous, but not necessarily ecstatic, but it's debatable. He leaves it open. He's very irenic in how he, in his tone. But it's not really here nor there. Um, and I'll get to it a little bit more later on. So what does it mean um, that the early church, what, what experience are they having? Because what they have done is they have received the spirit where the spirit has now fulfilled what was promised for Israel is now being true for not only Israel, but also for the Gentiles. So what does this church look like with this now indwelling spirit? What marks them as spiritual, capital S? Um, <clears throat> um, let's see. Um, yeah, what, uh, you know, what we need to see first and foremost is that when we speak about spiritual gifts, we often read the Bible individually. But whenever the spirit is spoken of in terms of dispersing gifts, it's for the body. And the first gift that the spirit does is this, the spirit that justifies us, applying the gospel to convict us of our sin, and then that we might believe and we're justified by the blood of Jesus. But as soon as we do that, the spirit adopts us into the family of God. And so the spirit is a corporate reality, that the spirit doesn't just it's not just, you know, individually, but individuals as a part of a body. But the spirit is to be at work corporately because the spirit is supposed to be other centered. Um, and that's the first that's the first thing we need to see. And so the, the spirit makes us the body of Christ. We are diverse in our members membership, but but we are of one body. And so uh, one of the markings of the spirit is unity. You know, Paul speaking about, oh, there's all this ecstatic stuff happening in the Corinth churches, but where's the unity? How can you say that the spirit has filled you if you're not unified, that the highest is love, that they are supposed to gather you together, not divide you and to fight. And so even no matter how we think about prophecy in tongues, we just think about denominationalism and how we are divided. And the, the final apologetic, the, the, you know, John 17, which is right after the discourse of the paraclete of the Holy Spirit to come, is that Jesus says, may they be at one mm -hmm. as you, as the Father and I are one. Mm -hmm. How sad we don't see that. Mm -hmm. But it's the Spirit who brings unity that we share in the same Spirit. Um, and I often think of, uh, in, I, in, in my years of Labrie, I've seen people who hold different doctrinal stances in different denominational strands, but I can see that the same spirit is at work in them as in me, and it brings delight to my heart. So the spirit is supposed to bring us in unity. Uh, also, the spirit is a variety of gifts, but what's, in, but what's important about these gifts is not supposed to give celebrity. It's not supposed to give someone special parlor tricks for Jesus, but rather it is all the gifts 
are given to us so we are equipped to serve others. The spiritual gifts are always to equip us to serve, to be in the mission of Jesus for one another, which helps the unity. Um, Also, we see new life. That the spirit uh, gives us a foretaste of the freedom in the world to come, as one person put it. The spirit gives us a foretaste of the freedom of the world to come. And so new life is uh, this heart that has been convicted, but now is liberated, liberated into new life. We die with Christ, but we are raised within the newness of life. And so we walk with freedom. No longer are we driven by fear, but by freedom. Uh, We are totally free because we're assured of our adoption by God and by God's spirit. And so while we may continue to sin, the ruling drive is that we are following the spirit. We're listening to the spirit. We're returning to the spirit. And uh, we start seeing that a life of freedom is not marked by doing what we want, but marked by virtue, that there needs to be fruitfulness in this new life. Um, And so life of the Christian in community is to be marked by love, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, as well as joy and peace. Imagine a community marked by those virtues, not just the person, but the community. That is a spirit-led community. And also the spirit matures us so that we might become more like Christ. There's a continual desire for revival. Now, I said that the spirit puts the world on trial to convict that there might be repentance and renewal, that there might, and in doing that, brings renewal to the world. Um, <clears throat> I'll mention later, but I'm going to say it now, but Zacchaeus, when Jesus comes to him, and Jesus, um, Zacchaeus is convicted and converted, in a sense, by Jesus' proclamation of who he is, and he believes him. What happens? Zacchaeus becomes generous. He wants to repay debts. And so this is a person who has been transformed by God. This is what the community is supposed to look like. And so that when people are brought into renewal, it's not supposed to just mean that they flog themselves. The spirit wants me to flog myself, but now I'm liberated to serve because I have assurance of God's love for me. And now I bring renewal to the the world around me, renewal to the barren places. And then we have a desire for worship, to praise God. Um, I often say that uh, I don't often like Christian worship music. But I love that Christian worship music exists. Now, what I mean by that is I think that there could be better Christian music. It's not that I'm against Christian music. I just wish that it was better. Um, Though it is getting better, I have to admit that the quality has taken an uptick uh, from the Multnomah days, um, my opinion. Uh, But what I see is that so often the music on the radio is self, self-congratulation, self-praise, or abandonment of senses. But how wonderful it is to sing of someone who loves you and, um, and who brings renewal and that desires goodness in the world. There's something that God does in us that causes us to want to praise him. That uh, the spirit, uh, the early church um, guided by the spirit should also have confidence of preservation. This is personally, this is particularly for the persecuted church. Mm -hmm. Those who are afraid of the powers around them. Mm -hmm. 
And the early church realized that, and this is why John, um, Jesus spoke in John 14 through 16, is really the spirit will give you the words you need to say. Don't worry. The spirit is with you and guiding you and will communicate through you. So it's really an act of encouragement and assurance. And that assurance is also a secure hope um, that what God has started, God will complete. And so really the early, the early church that is led by the spirit should be unified, gifted for service and for one another, a liberated life, desire for revival in themselves and in society, desire to worship and praise the God who's made this happen, confidence in their preservation, and a secure hope of what God will bring past in them and for the world. That's a spiritual community. So what are the implications? This is where I end. <clears throat> um, so what we see is that God has fulfilled his promises. What he promised in the Old Testament is now fulfilled in the New Testament. And something that, how are we to understand that now in the present day? What are the implications and what do I want you to walk away with? Um, perhaps in order to understand how significant the coming of the spirit is, um, I want us to see what life in Christ or life in the body of Christ would look like had the spirit not come. And this comes from an Orthodox theologian named uh, uh, Ignatius Hazim. He says, without the Holy Spirit, God is distant. Christ is in the past. The gospel is a dead letter. The church is simple organization. Authority is domination. Mission is propaganda. Worship is the summoning of spirits. And Christian action is the morality of slaves. It makes you think about you can do all these things, but if you don't have the life of the spirit guiding you, then this is what it becomes. First, I want to say this is exactly how the world looks at the church because they don't have the knowledge of God. They think it is just moral propaganda. But the other thing is that often this is our experience of the church when the church is not worshiping in the spirit. If you've been in a church where the spirit is no longer present, this is what it is. It's dead orthodoxy, and it kills you, and it damages everyone around you. So what we need is that we need to, um, to live into the reality of the spirit so that, it, that we might become unified, gifted in service, rejoicing, joyful, bestowing virtues. <clears throat> Just as not only Zacchaeus, but Zacchaeus has only one part of the body. But just imagine 150 Zacchaeuses in one community. It doesn't matter that there's 150 in a city of 300,000. That would be powerful. The people looking to the spirit. Seeing people who serve. Imagine we're walking into the midst of a people. Imagine a non-believer walking to the midst of a people. Seeing that they serve not their interests first, but others that they live generously with one another, that they live with hope for what is done and will be done in them and for the world. They will see a distinct people. I can't help but think that they'll taste and see that the Lord is good rather than just propagandistic. If they really 
not just proclaim it, but also live in obedience to the spirit and how they call you. So this is why I think tongues and prophecy are in a sense besides the point. It's not really an argument I care about. Even though we can agree or disagree, it doesn't matter. I'm saying you can have all that, but if you have not love, but if you have love and not those things, then it's still fine. The spirit can work mightily. And that the spirit may work in a particular ways, but always with the question, is it pointing to Jesus? Is it bringing people into Jesus? Does it look like Jesus? And so this is my final kind of reflection is that I started the question of who is the Holy Spirit? What does the Holy Spirit look like? I've come to a conclusion. It actually kind of startled me. The portrait of the Holy Spirit's work is not just looking at the actions of what the Spirit has done throughout Scripture, but that the Spirit alive and well in the midst of his people and the people who are living in the Spirit leaning in him, trusting in him, secure in their hope in him, will present the portrait of what the, who the Spirit is and what the Spirit looks like. And so when the, when the people look at God's people who are living in the Spirit, they see who the Spirit is, mm-hmm. the character and the personality of that Spirit. Mm-hmm. So what do people see in your churches? Mm-hmm. How might we strive to live faithfully in the Spirit um, as we as we seek to proclaim the gospel in word and in deed. And this is why I have this picture is the only one I could find where there was kind of an act of prayerfulness in, um, in word, but also in um, action of, of liberating people from physical poverty, but also to speak to the poor in spirit at the same time. Um, uh, as James says, the true religion is, to look at the orphan and the widows and to be pure in the world, something like that, and to keep yourself from being polluted. But this idea that when, when God's people is faithfully to God, toward Jesus, people will see who the spirit is. And when they see the spirit, they'll look to Jesus. 